you know, I think they're pointing to the, the need to, to diversify into alternative markets for the product. And, you know, a good place to diversify is petrochemical integration. And that's kind of how I read this. You know, it's, it's the taking more of your barrel of oil to things that are not combusted. So if you look at a barrel of oil, the majority of it ends up in transportation fuels. There's other fuels, home heating fuels. Um, and then the, the last, the smaller share of it actually ends up in petrochemical processes. You know, you think about it, lubes and waxes, um, plastics and polymers ultimately is where a lot of it goes. You know, taking a bigger wedge of that barrel into petrochemicals provides you long, a greater, you know, a lower emission profile. And, and if you look at life cycle emissions of crude oil, for example, most of your emissions come from combustion. The way to decarbonize that is to combust less of it. And so if you land more of your product into non-combustibles, it makes the product more resilient, but it also decarbonizes the value chain of that product as well. Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks, the podcast where we discuss global energy issues and trends with experts from around the world. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. On this episode, I'll be talking to economist Kevin Byrne of IHS Market about the recently announced Oil Sands Pathways to Net Zero Initiative, an alliance of the major Canadian oil sands companies intended to decarbonize among the most emissions-intensive crude oils in the world. Welcome to Energy Talks, Kevin. Hi, Markham. So you and I have uh, talked many times over the last five or six years about the oil sands and about emissions. And we've talked about how they, these companies have invested hundreds of millions of dollars in various technologies trying to bring down emissions. Uh, they, in fact, have done a good job on emissions intensity per barrel. They were, as I recall, your 2020 study, they were up around 86 to 90 uh, kilograms of CO2 equivalent per barrel not that long ago. The average now is 70 per barrel, according to your study. And I have been a bit of a critic uh, publicly calling on the oil sands to decarbonize more quickly than that because that oil is that's still uh, fairly carbon intense compared to other crude oils. So today we have this new initiative and it is the, the bigger companies. We've got uh, Suncor, Synovus, CNRL, Imperial Oil and Big Energy. I think they produce around 95% of, uh, of the oil sands crude and they've all come together to announce this initiative, they're going to invest in technologies. They want government at the table to help out. What's your general take on the announcement? Well, I think what you've seen over the last 12 to 18 months <clears throat> globally in is acceleration in the interest, motivation, and pressure to decarbonize our economies. And I think the oil sands announcement here is part of that response of industries trying to adapt, trying to find how much and when to pivot into what. And when you look at upstream oil and gas generally, there are, in a very simplistic framework, really a, a handful of options facing them. One is to decarbonize the assets you, they own. Then another one is to uh, divest or invest in alternative oil and gas assets that could be lower carbon and dilute your emission intensity in, in, in the sense of a portfolio approach, so of a corporation. And the third one is, of course, to 
invest in alternative forms of lower carbon energy, you know, renewables, wind power, like, like Suncor is doing. As a, as a portfolio, these are your options. The uh, last two options don't actually decarbonize the assets, right? The first one is the fix it. And that actually starts to, you know, reduce emissions because you could sell an asset and someone just continues to operate it. And so this, these oil sands companies see themselves having a strategic advantage operating oil sands and the pressures from investors are return more cash to me and reduce the intensity of your operations. So they're pivoting their, their focus towards value, returning more value than uh, growth strategies that were focused on revenues and growing production. So I, the, the takeaway for me from that, uh, Kevin, uh, is essentially that uh, investors think that decarbonization actually will put more money in their pocket. I think it's twofold. One is if you, you know, this, this pressure to return ca cash to shareholders means there's less capital to do things with, but also they see uh, greater uncertainty on the future of oil demand. And so they see interest in making these companies more resilient. And the reality is when we look at the competitive forces for oil and gas, greenhouse gas emissions, greenhouse gas emission intensity is a new competitive dynamic. So these companies are going to compete on their emission intensity. And so you, you see the oil sands companies pivoting towards that uh, with, with an announcement like this. Right. And the mantra for this industry, as I described in my 2019 book, The New Alberta Advantage, Technology Policy, and the future of the oil sands. That mantra is cost and carbon competitive. They see those two things as going together. I want to address one thing that you raised, which is this idea that decarbonization could reduce the amount of money that available to for other things. And uh, Suncor, in particular, in its investor presentation that it released last week, showed that this, even though they intend to be reduce emissions by 35% by 2030, over the next four years to 2025, they actually intend to bring their break-even down from $35 US to $27 US, makes them a competitive uh, barrel. And that's really a significant uh, drop, but it also increases well, quite significantly the amount of free cash flow available to them. I think that's right. I, I'm sorry if my comment was confusing. I was more referring to the desire to return cash to shareholders. That's what the investors are asking for. So if you're going to, you know, if you're going to have to pay more money to them, you're going to have less capital as a whole to do that with. But that's why you see them focusing on the cost reductions to grow the margin, generate that more free cash flow, make them a more attractive investment. And that, and then the other thing they're doing with that is spending more of it on decarbonization as a whole as well. Um, I think, you know, the economics of oil sands are, we've talked about this many times in, in previous interviews, are not well understood, you know, in, in terms of what the margin looks like. Most oil sands assets that are existing and operating have cash cost break-evens of $30 WTI or beneath, which means that the prices we're experiencing now, they're, they're doing quite well, and that's going to give them the cash to do these kinds of things, as well as return or increase those dividends or share buybacks or create more value for shareholders as well. Well, let's talk about some of the specific uh, initiatives that are uh, would likely be included in this. And one of them uh, is a major carbon capture utilization and storage trunk line. Now, the Alberta, uh, Alberta already has 
uh, a CO2 uh, pipeline. That was a fairly significant uh, investment. And it's also true that Alberta has very, very good rock, uh, very good geology in its old oil and gas reservoirs to store CO2 safely. Um, so what do you make of this idea that they want to build a pipeline down from the Fort McMurray area that all of the oil producers, oil sands producers can tie into, then send it down south, and I would assume it would either then be sequestered in reservoirs or it would be used by companies that can take CO2 and make products out of it. Sure, maybe, maybe we'll just step one back there because there's a lot of pieces in that to unpack. I think the first one is when we look at oil sands emission intensity performance, we've, you know, you've seen the studies, we, we've measured them falling about 20% over the last decade. And the last time we did a projection uh, in 2018, we saw another 20%. And I think we talked a few weeks ago about the, um, what the oil sands needs to do to really accelerate that is do more step out technologies, you know, accelerate the deployment of solvents, um, potentially explore CCS because it can take off, take out large chunks in much more material ways of their emissions. Now, when you look at the oil sands, they're, they're unique compared to other oil and gas activities. In, and they're not, they're not alone, I should say, in the oil and gas space and what they do. But I think you have to think about these. These are large facilities. They're more akin to industrial plants. You can think of like a power plant. Whereas most oil and gas or most conventional, unconventional oil and gas activities about a number of wells being drilled and there's emissions associated with the drilling and then the operation of those wells. So you have a numerous amounts of emission sources occurring and they're occurring sporadically. In the oil sands, there are these large industrial facility with some concentrated streams of CO2, but there is consolidation of those emissions. And so they lend themselves attract more attractively to CCS, which requires scale to take advantage of that. Now there's different cost advantages of C CCS, but one of, the, one of the challenges of carbon capture and storage is you know, filling the pipe. You know, the economics of building a large transportation system for CO2 is very difficult to make work with one or two tenants. You, know, you can think about the pipelines we have leaving Western Canada that travel crude oil. They work because there's multiple people using them rather than one user of them. And so to build this kind of infrastructure, they're talking about coordinating on that infrastructure. So we can have coordination of the capture, you know, the timing of the capture technology. We can coordinate the completion of the pipeline that's going to be required. So you can get assurances over the use of that pipeline, which is what the pipeline operator needs to have long-term contracts. And then so it's a way to bring down the cost and potentially accelerate the timing of CCS. And they, they talk about building a backbone kind of system, potentially plugging into the existing system, in my mind, that would make sense, that connects Fort McMurray through the core oil sands regions, which is Fort McMurray, kind of the Christina Lake area, and further south, potentially doing a leg towards some of the activity in the Cold Lake region as well, which is kind of the core oil sands regions. Um, so I think that's what they're getting at, is that need to coordinate. And we've seen the federal government announce policies, they're interested in trying to accelerate CCS uh, in general, there's tax credits, they're in, in discussions about rolling forward. And this is an opportunity to get together and coordinate on something that probably benefits from coordination. Yeah, so if I remember correctly, it was only a month or two ago that the Alberta and federal governments came together and announced a CCUS task force, uh, something like that, 
where it would coordinate the governments and industry efforts to further this technology. Uh, Kevin, do you have any sense of where CCUS technology is in the oil sands? Or is it early days or, or has this been uh, research and development been going on for a while? Well, CCUS is not a CCS is not a new technology, but and, and I want to be very clear, it's not a technology. It's a suite of technologies. It, you know, and the best way to think about it for your listening, there's it's three pieces, right? It's carbon capture and storage, but you know, it kind of skips over the transport too, right? And so you have to capture it, and the, the there's different costs associated with capturing CO2. It's really associated with how, what's the purity of the stream, right? It'd be relatively easy if you just got pure CO2 out of the back end of something, but often when we combust, there's a lot of imperfect, you know, incomplete combustion, there's other molecules in there, so they have to isolate and separate that CO2, concentrate it down to make the transportation of it economic, then they transport it, that is a cost, and then they have to find a facility to sequester it or use, you know, in, in, the, in the use of cement, or in the use of enhanced oil recovery as an example as well. And so it's these three components. And the best way to think about it, the cost is, there's a lot of cost associated depending on how pure that stream you're capturing off. Obviously higher concentrations are lower cost. Now in the oil sands, it's not new to the oil sands. They have, there's been a, a CCS facility operating at the, uh, the Scottford re, um, refinery facility, which is integrated with the Albion Sands mine for a number of years. It's one of the test facilities. Um, if people are curious, you can download, they put out annualized reports the government makes available on the operations. It's a good example of CCS. So it's not novel. Um, large scale expansion still is gonna be capital intensive. These are projects that take time to be built as well. They're not things that are gonna turn on overnight, but they will be a capital intensive project to be brought online. And the scale being considered here means there could be a sizable CCS industry in development rather quickly. Now the benefits will take multiple years before these facilities would be turned online. So you're talking about pipelines, multiple multiple capture facilities, multiple locations, and then you know one you know you can see one or two sequestration opportunities. And you're right, Alberta has tremendous geological potential to store CCS. And so and, and the advantage of CCS for the oil sands is it's lockstep large scale reductions. So it's not intensity, you know, you think about intensity reductions, a few percentage points a year, maybe more aggressively with, you know, um, deployment of solvents. We're talking about taking out offline out of, out of the system a megaton in kind of scale drops as these plants would come online. Um, and in the oil sands, there's various capture opportunities. You know, in the, in the mines, they have what they call steam methane reformers. They use um, hydrogen in their upgrading process that generates uh, Pierce a fairly high concentration steam, stream of CO2, which is arguably a lower capture opportunity in terms of cost. And, and, and then you get into more diffuse sources like the cogeneration plants that would be higher cost. Well, let's talk about hydrogen because I, I'm not sure this is well understood, but the oil sands plants do create hydrogen. And if I understand this correctly, it's considered gray hydrogen. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about how that might fit into this new initiative? Well, that's what I was talking about. I was talking about uh, steam methane reforming, um, where they, they take basically natural gas and, and create steam, and then they use the natural gas to convert it and, and to produce hydrogen that's used in the, the production or the upgrading of the bitumen into synthetic crude oil. It, it generates multiple streams of, of emissions. There's a high purity stream CO2 that comes off when the natural gas is convert, converted into or split into hydrogen. 
there's low purity from the combustion of the energy required to, to hit the temperature required for that process to occur. And then there's the hydrogen itself that come up, comes out of it. Um, I don't, I'm not a hydrogen expert, uh, Markham, so I don't know how much more you want me to talk about it. I, I might go out of my depth pretty quick. Well, let's move on. There's, there's lots more to talk about. Uh, let's talk about process improvements. This was mentioned in the press release. What is a process improvement and how might that play out in the oil sands? Well, in my mind, I have to know it, you know, there's multiple, in my mind, there's multiple ways to interpret what a process improvement could mean. Um, but the way I think about it, I think about it operational improvements. Um, and, and, and we've talked about this before. If you, if you look at some of the papers we've done, operational improvements amount to efficiency improvements from an emission standpoint. So they, they reduce the intensity of production. And if you get enough of them, you will pull down absolute emissions. So, you know, if you hold your volume constant and you, you, you create an intensity improvement, you, you'll pull down an absolute emission reduction. But if you, 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 alternatively, if you're growing output and driving much larger intensity improvements, it will pull it down more aggressive. So you, you think about these pancakings, you know, CCS, and then on top of it, these intensity improvements, they're gonna get more efficient on the process. Um, you can think of these things, things, an example could be the deployment of solvents Right? So it takes less energy to produce a barrel of oil, but it also improves the productivity of their plant. So the same scale plant can produce more oil from it. And that means the energy required to produce that, that, that barrel of oil from that plant is going to be less, but so will the cost. Right? So in that, that, these are things that usually work hand in hand in driving cost, cost down, and that's what we've seen over the last half decade, but also emissions uh, intensity down as well. Um, I'll leave it there. I don't want to drone on about it too much. Uh, thank you. On behalf of our listeners, we, uh, we appreciate that. Uh, let's talk about electrification and small modular nuclear reactors, which got mentioned in the press release as well. Uh, SMRs are a pet project of both the Alberta government and the Canadian government. There, there was an agreement signed between Alberta, Saskatchewan, uh, and a couple of other provinces to advance SMR technology. And how much opportunity is there for electrification of oil sands processes? Well, it, de it depends on where, you know, like when mo most of the thermal operations is about the conversion of natural gas to generate steam. And combustion is very efficient at that compared to electric, electric uh, uh, thermal generation. Um, and so that's probably what they're looking at CCS for to capture that, that stream off the other side. Um, small modular nuclear reactors is an alternative form of, you know, internal alternative source of steam generation with no real, no, I shouldn't say no emissions, but low emission, a very low emission profiles associated with. So in that creation of the steam component, um, I, 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 I'm going to, I'm going to use SMR again, but in this case, it's not a steam methane reformer. It's a small modular nuclear reactor. Um, is an opportunity to to pull pull off some of those boiler units and replace them with these these units that would have much you know much dramatic more dramatic impact on emissions. And let me give you an example. If you look at thermal oil sands extraction, you know 85 90 plus percent of the emissions is from the combustion of natural gas to generate steam. You know, and, and so it's a very large source of emission. So if you can replace that steam generation component with something else, you can get very sizable reductions from those plants. And I suppose if you've got SMRs, and, and we don't know 
uh, what that electricity will cost. But there are technologies that are still not commercially deployable, but I'm thinking of downhole electric heaters for the steam-assisted gravity uh, drainage uh, operas, the, the SAG-D uh, that makes up so much of, say, Synovus's production, where you instead of using steam, you use these big microwaves that you stick down, the, down yeah. into, the, into the reservoir. And uh, is there any chance that those technologies will be part of this initiative because I didn't see them mentioned in here. Well, there's there's a you know when we say technologies, there's actually a lot of different technologies in development. That that's one of them that, that they're looking at or have looked at. Um, I'm not sure what the differentiation is. What got in the release isn't in the release. I think you know the potential is the release is targeting some very specific things they have in mind that may be more near commercial in their in their head than other things. Um, you know, so CCS is not an, un, it's a proven technology. It, it has been deployed, it's being deployed. You know, the oil sands isn't the only oil sector in the world doing and looking at investing in CCS. We're seeing it crop up at an increasing rate all around the world. You know, so I think that that might be the focus is what are the things that are commercially available that they could advance on in, and in the terms of the, the, the release they put out advance on in collaboration with the governments of Alberta and Canada to accelerate decarbonization of the oil sands and make more meaningful contributions to Canada's ambition targets in 2030 and then net zero. Now, there's a fair emphasis in the announcement on the federal and provincial uh, regulatory and policy framework, including uh, emissions reductions credits, ongoing investment tax credits, those sort of things. So do you have a, a take on what that policy framework, where it is now, I guess, and where it might have to go to enable all of these uh, technologies, uh, technology development and implementation? I am not privy to the policy development framework. Um, you know, I'm, not, I'm not party to that. And if I were, I, I couldn't comment on it anyways. Um, I, I would say, I think they're suggesting that there's, you know, there are the, I, the tax credit is still, I think the budget, um, 2021, the federal government put out in identified the tax credit, but it also identified the need to negotiate the details of how it function. There are ways to get bigger bangs for your dollars from the federal government in terms of incentivizing decarbonization, how that tax credit is structured. Um, can it provide assurance to the financial community in terms of the value of the CO2 that's going to be captured um, down the road and in the future. Um, you know, can, you, can the government's involvement in the sector lower the cost of capital for these projects, which means the, the grant and you know, the money that's coming from these, in, these initiatives from the federal government can be more effective because you know, the, the amount you pay for, for the, to borrow the money to build these things is gonna be less. That's a very simple, simplistic and crude way to think about it. Um, there's other things associated with you know, there's, there's probably regulatory process and lead time to develop, you know, the permits to build some of this infrastructure they're probably targeting as well. You know, because if you think about CCS projects and specifically, and I don't mean to go back on it, but I've just done more work than on hydrogen specifically, you know, you're looking at lead times in terms of design, um, construction and on in, in the terms of over half a decade. And so if you and I count on our fingers between the, you know, where we're standing today, um, and where we need to get by 2030, we're, you know, it would be light speed to have a sizable CCS plant online in less than seven or eight years. 
And so, you know, if they get hung up in a regulatory process that takes two to three years, we're in 2024 and they're not going to make it by 2030. And so that, you know, that, that's not to say it's, you know, there's things that can happen in unison, but the need is to go faster. I think that's what you're seeing here. And the language is they want to partner with the governments, at least that's my interpretation, to try to go faster. And there's things that the, both parties are going to need to move faster on. Um, and there's also some nuances in some of the regulations about where you can sequester, how you monitor, how you get permits. Then there's some very interesting questions about who owns the poor space when you sequester, who should have the rights to it. Those are all questions that are, you know, some of them are answered and some of them are not answered. I want to wrap up our conversation today, Kevin, with uh, an issue that is near and dear to my heart. In fact, I wrote an article about it in the uh, March uh, issue of Alberta Views magazine, and that is the post-combustion uh, future uh, for the Alberta oil sands, because this doesn't get a lot of attention, and I think it deserves more, and in fact found its way, uh, albeit not very prominently, into the announcement, basically where the parties are talking about a diversified energy mix that includes feedstock for carbon fibers, asphalt, plastics, and other products. And that's essentially, uh, and I think I, out of those, carbon fiber is probably the most advanced. Uh, the Alberta Innovates, uh, the agency has been actively researching this since 2018. It looks like uh, there's a very good chance that five to seven years from now, there will be a commercially uh, competitive process. Uh, Alberta Innovates, in fact, thinks that it will be able to produce carbon fiber for half the current rate of current cost, which would be a significant uh, advancement. Uh, there's a huge market, of course, in the automotive industry, but also in some you mentioned like con concrete. And so I, what do you make of this downplaying, but it, you know, it, they're flagging it here as something that they want to work towards, which is using it as feedstock for materials instead of feedstock for fuels. Well, I think it's, you know, it's the, a way to, how do I think about this? If you think of what they're producing now, a good, the majority of it, not all of it, but a, the majority of it ends up in the products you and I use to get around, right? Heating homes, running cars, those sorts of things. Um, over time, now we, we can have different debates about the, 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 the rate of transition or the pace of transition, and it's certainly accelerated, but you know, I think they're pointing to the, the need to, to diversify into alternative markets for the product. And, you know, a good place to diversify is petrochemical integration. And that's kind of how I read this. You know, it's, it's the taking more of your barrel of oil to things that are not combusted. So if you look at a barrel of oil, the majority of it ends up in transportation fuels. There's other fuels, home heating fuels. Um, and then the, the last, the smaller share of it actually ends up in petrochemical processes. You know, you think about it, lubes and waxes, um, plastics and polymers ultimately is where a lot of it goes. You know, taking a bigger wedge of that barrel into petrochemicals provides you a greater, you know, a lower emission profile. And, and if you look at life cycle emissions of crude oil, for example, most of your emissions come from combustion. The way to decarbonize that is to combust less of it. And so if you land more of your product into non-combustibles, it makes the product more resilient, but it also decarbonizes the value chain of that product as well. Just as a, a final aside, Kevin, a couple of years ago, I interviewed your IHS market colleague, Dr. RJ Chang, 
about the new uh, one-step uh, petrochemical process for making plastics that the Chinese are beginning to implement in their big uh, uh, refinery complexes, sort of refinery combination petrochemical complexes, whereas it used to take two steps to turn oil into uh, plastic precursors, now they can do it in one step, which makes it as uh, economical, uh, it's competitive with natural gas as a, as a feedstock, and uh, it can use, in fact, it's kind of designed for heavy crude oil, like maybe a, maybe a bitumen. And do you, just any thoughts on whether or not we might see some of that technology finding its way into Canada as part of this integrated approach that you referred to? I, I don't know, to be honest, to answer that question. We are seeing this crude to chemicals is not an isolated interest globally. Um, you know, there's other technologies. Um, there's a technology in the Middle East that does a higher share of the barrel straight through. So yeah, you can do it in one step, but now there's technologies that would take a bigger chunk of the barrel through to crude, through, right through to chemicals. There's advantage of integrating, you know, heat integration, bunch of other things but integrating chemical facilities and refinery facilities, um, you know, so it becomes more of a multi, you know, hub kind of system when you think about that. Um, and ultimately it, it, the owners of those assets, what they're, they're seeking to do is diversify the product mix. So if, if you, you know, depending on how fast or what's the stability of long-term demand, taking that crude into a, you know, non-combusted material outside of the transportation fuel market is a way to secure that asset or that product through 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 transition. Kevin, uh, fascinating insight into where the oil sands is going with decarbonization and where it might go uh, in the future. Uh, the announcement we have today essentially, I think, uh, starts the process of a net zero by 2050 in a much more structured uh, way than we have seen before. I think this is good news. Now, of course, the proof of the pudding will be in the tasting and we'll be watching this process with, with great interest. Thank you very much for your insights. Always appreciate it. Thanks, Mark. And pleasure to be here.